Good evening and welcome to the 21st Century Schizoid Podcast. I'm your host as always, Cooper Cherry. That is my best Hitchcock impersonation. Today I have Andrew Stamper rejoining me. We are going to be doing a series together where we skip back and forth between our reviewing our top five favorite films of all, or I guess what, best films of all time. Yeah, I think best films. Best films of, yeah. for us personally. Um, so today we are going to start out with Andrew's number five, that is Vertigo. And uh, I, I have to say that <clears throat> had I seen this in 1958, I definitely would have been a huge fan of this film. Had you seen it in 1958, you might have been part of like the minority, as I think it didn't really have a huge amount of success when it first came out. But yeah, right. I'm completely with you on that. I can definitely see why the, you know, I think it had been voted over Citizen Kane and some recent, you know, within the last five years, some publications have come out and listed as the number one film, yeah, the best B- film of all time, or yeah. at least American film. Yeah, the BFI, Sight and Sound, um, like every 10 years they do this this series where they, they review the, what's kind of a poll of the top 10 greatest movies of all time. And yeah, finally Vertigo kind of uh, overtook Citizen Kane. Pretty impressive. I have to say that I definitely, t- I tend not to like older films. I mean, it, even Citizen Kane, though, I appreciate, you know, what a landmark film it is in terms of what it did, I, in terms of like the technical aspects of, um, you know, the cinematography and, and the different things that um, were really pioneered by Orson Welles there. Uh, I have a hard time with, I think, the pacing, maybe most of all, and, you know, today's films are a lot more, there's a lot more quick cuts and, and things like that, so... Um, just wanted to give a little bit of context there, but I, I definitely think this holds up pretty well. I was pretty surprised mm-hmm. and thinking, yeah, I, if I would have come out of the theater fucking in love with this, just a couple of standout things like the introduction of the dolly zoom mm-hmm. that the dream sequences and the opening sequence, the, the Saul Bass yeah. opening sequence and, you know, iconic film poster, probably one of the most iconic film posters in history mm-hmm. yeah and the movie gets you from that from the from the opening credits with uh and then just the the haunting um uh herman score i mean just a long time alfred hitchcock collaborator collaborator i mean it just it gets you from that from the opening credits and it's kind of like the definitive like alfred hitchcock film and i mean he has so many mat what we would call masterpieces but this one is it's just the ultimate story, um, you know, and really, which is when you really want to just get down and analyze the whole film. It, the, the movie itself is kind of, I don't want to say necessarily autobiographical, but in ways it is. I mean, you know, you have the whole idea of like obsessing over a woman and trying to basically mold some a woman after someone else. And the movie, I mean, it's kind of really like Albert Hitchcock's own way of trying to find a new Grace Kelly, you know. Because uh, at that point she had remarried or had been married and had retired from acting, so yeah, it's it's just fucked up. I mean, the- <laughs> so I was thinking we could probably start out with the the acting from the film and kind of talk about that to start things off. I think it's it's probably honestly something I have probably the least to to discuss on. So I will uh, I will defer to you and see get get your read on it in terms and- of the performances. Yeah, I mean, the, the movie, 
succeeds purely on the fact that, I mean, it's Jimmy Stewart. I mean, he carries the entire film, whether it's that that 10 plus minute series where there is absolutely no dialogue and he's just following her around. I mean, you, you, you just have his eyes and you just watch Jimmy Stewart, who, I mean, when you just think about the previous films he had been in, you know, where he was more like the lovable, you know, um, guy. I mean, this is a, a very, very dark turn for Jimmy Stewart. And um, yeah, he... He, he just rocks the hell out of it. So his performance is, you know, just brilliant as just kind of that emasculated male, right? I mean, I mean, he has, what, three different names in yes. <laughs> uh, where he's referred to, you know, three different different names throughout the whole film uh, where he's playing just one character. But yeah, um, he, was, he was brilliant. And I mean, Kim Novak, beautiful. Um, I don't think she really holds a candle in terms of what she was able to bring in the way of, you know, like a, you know, Grace Kelly and some of the other actresses that he had used in the past, but she was perfect. And I know that she was his second choice that he, you know, that he had, you know, he, when obviously he couldn't have, um, Grace Kelly, he went with, um, oh shoot, I can't believe I forgot her name, but basically the lady that plays the sister of Marion Crane and psycho, but she, she fell through because she got pregnant, I believe. So yeah. went with her, but yeah, I mean, Kim Novak, you know, um, a lot of her role, I guess, basically was just rocking, not wearing a brassiere in the uh, the entire film. But um, yeah, she I thought she was great. So the acting, I think that's really one of the least interesting aspects of the movie is what the what, you know, how the acting is, because there's so much other things happening in terms of, you know, uh, subtext and uh, themes that are going on. And that's really what captivates you. The even the kind of paternal figure of uh, Gavin Ulster, you know, you're not really entirely interested in his overall performance, more so of just what his performance brings to the table. So the, I mean, and of course you have the, uh, that, that, that famous courtroom scene later on in the movie where they're talking about just how horrible a human being, um, Jimmy Stewart <laughs> is for, you know, leaving, uh, leaving, you know, the woman at, uh, at the scene of the crime. And, um, yeah, so the, the acting highly serviceable, but, as Alfred Hitchcock, you know, had said before, I mean, actors are, you know, they're, they're cattle. So, <laughs> uh, but no, I mean, at, at its core, I mean, Jimmy Stewart completely carries the film and it's quite frankly, probably, no, it is. Yeah. It's my favorite Jimmy Stewart performance, uh, that, that he's had and it's just complete 180 from what he did and it's a wonderful life. And, um, and of course the other Alfred Hitchcock movie, Rear Window and a couple other films he had done where he's, you know, um, Still fantastic, but yeah, Vertigo, just brilliant, brilliant performance. I was very impressed by the performances of both both leads in the film. Uh, I mean, as you said, Stewart really just killed it in this role, and his anxiety and sort of whole, I guess, vulnerability. And we'll get into a little bit about a little bit more about that later. But I was really impressed with the performances and felt both both held up really well i think in particular for um kim novak to you know basically be playing two different characters mm-hmm. yeah was extremely convincing as well i was really impressed by both by both leads and actually read that neither one got any acting nods for this film that year mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. yeah and what um i mean this film which was like based on uh i think like a french novel kind of like differs when, when we talk about how like Kim Novak played two different roles in the, in the novel, we know like right away that, uh, it's that she is 
um, uh, not just Judy, but uh, you know the, uh, the the character that she she you know, you know uh, Jimmy Stewart's character falls in love with. But so we're told that at the beginning, but Alfred Hitchcock kind of shook it up and, and changed the the uh, the narrative. So it actually adds a lot more weight to the performance that Kim Novak had. You know when. The, the turn is where the viewer finds out halfway through and then it really comes down to the 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 suspense of well what's going to happen when Jimmy Stewart does find out what is you know what is uh you know Scotty going to figure out you know what, what how is he going to respond to that and of course obviously we you know we have that the uh the climax at the end but yeah um Sorry, I just got lost even just thinking about the movie. Um, <laughs> just haunting the entire right. the entire thing. But yeah, Kim. Uh, Kim don't Nova. look. Don't look down, man. Don't look down. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Whatever you do, don't look down. <laughs> um, but let's let's go ahead and move on into the cinematography in this film, which, like I said earlier in the intro, is that the first film that ever employed the dolly zoom. So that's basically you're executing a zoom in while dollying back. I think is mm-hmm. that is that yeah. right? And I think he used like a miniature uh, for and like put the camera on its side. And when they were talking about the production, they were they had to create something. I think that 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 one scene cost like twenty thousand dollars, and it was half of what they were originally going to be doing, which was going to be like about you know forty thousand things. So they invented this whole thing of the, that dolly zoom and and um, very very famous iconic you know oh, uh, shot. And now it's the rest is history regarding that. But that was kind of like an afterthought and like. How are we going to make this happen? Pretty impressive. I thought it really carried or added something. You know what I mean? A lot of, I guess, critiques of, you know, it's easy to make beautiful images, but making beautiful images that service the storytelling. Mm-hmm. And I thought that really captured sort of the uh, the anxiety and the sort of, I don't know what the, even the better word is other than anxiety of of that vertigo sort of feeling mm-hmm. of being the, the disorientation of it in particular. Oh yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, another sh- couple of, there's two or three shots overall. I wasn't all that, um, you know, stunned by the overall cinematography, not that it was bad or, or, or what have you, but there wasn't a lot of sort of remarkable things aside from that. Now I'm sure in the context of 1958, I probably would have mm-hmm. been a lot more impressed by that, but um, so the dolly zooms, um, another shot that really early on in the film, I really loved was when he goes to the restaurant Ernie's, he's Elster has invited him or wants him to come. They're going to dinner. He's there to, you know, get, get a visual on the wife so that he knows what she looked like mm-hmm. and can begin sort of following her and what have you. So the camera starts out on Jimmy Stewart at the bar and then it does a nice pullback. Mm-hmm. So the camera pulls back slowly and then we push forward onto Elster and his wife having dinner, mm-hmm. which I thought was really great camera movement, really just br- brilliant use of the camera in that, in that sense. Another standout moment for me was the, there was an establishing shot and it was, it was a very formalist composition. It was very much, very much Kubrickian. I think it was kind of a, it was this, it wasn't the art gallery, but it was another sort of building that he had followed her to that had columns on the sides and had stairs up. I, I forget what the context of it was, but a really balanced and 
formalist shot that I that I really enjoyed. I'm trying to remember that specific that specific scene that you're referring to. Um, run me through what uh, what else was going on. I can't. I'm, I'm drawing. Blank. I he, he follows her to to this place, and like I said, it's a it's a pretty big gray building with columns outside out front, and and it wasn't the museum. I don't think so. Okay. Maybe I'm I'm wrong, though. It could be. It could be. Um, It might, because I remember there was the, like, the the columns external of, like, that that one museum that's in San Francisco, but trying to think, like, because, I mean, he followed her all over San Francisco, (laughs) Um, and so you had that. You had the Golden uh, Golden Gate Bridge. He followed her into the art gallery, the, and then... Yeah, I thought, I, and yeah, I I can be completely wrong, but I, I I know exactly what you're what you're referring to. But I mean, the movie's just filmed with just a, a series of just beautiful, just beautiful shots. Um, and for me, the it's got to be when they were looking at the like the I, I just love the, the giant trees. <laughs> um, that uh, scene that comes a little bit later, where you know she is kind of in that that weird little trance, if you will, and and then, like, the, where they had, like, the little um, tree, uh, kind of, like, the clearing there. And he was, and she was looking at the, like, the, just kind of, like, the insert of the tree. And I just, yeah, it's just another beautiful, beautiful scene. And just makes me just want to go into, like, just the Pacific Northwest and um, see other beautiful uh, things like that. It's it just, that movie and, like, so many others were, like, San Francisco is just uh, Alfred Hitchcock's play, favorite place to shoot. And that movie, along with movies like The Birds, are just giant love affairs that he had with that city. And Vertigo is really probably the, the ultimate one where he just, just drives all over and, um, and, you, and you just get these beautiful shots of San Francisco because it does play out perfectly cinematically. I mean, and imagine there would probably be a whole lot more movies that were filmed there if it wasn't just so ridiculously expensive to shoot in that city. Um, but yeah, it's kind of funny. So I was listening to a couple of videos that uh, Shlevoy Zizek had done, and uh, in one he kind of made he was making this joke about how San Francisco was created just so that Vertigo could be shot there, <laughs> which I kind of enjoyed. And I don't know, listeners, if you're familiar with, with Zizek and uh, what is it, the, the Pervert's Guide to Cinema, definitely recommend checking that out. He actually has a little ten or fifteen minutes that he spends on Vertigo. Yeah, you sent that uh, to me, and I watched that actually uh, uh, a little earlier today. Watching that, we'll we'll touch on that a little bit later. Um, a couple of other shots that I really liked were when they're down by San Francisco Bay, and you have the Golden Gate Bridge. Just the way that the the bridge sort of kind of cuts off at an angle, sort of the top, I guess, sort of quarter of the screen. I don't know. Just gives a very interesting perspective and depth to that shot mm-hmm. that I really enjoyed. That was kind of another standout moment for me cinematically. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. I mean, the movie is loaded with beautiful shots like that, but you know, and that, that, you know, the golden gate breach thing is no exception. One of the scenes I do love and just the way that everything is framed is actually just when we're, when we meet Elster and the way that they have Jimmy Stewart seated and then Elster always kind of like towering over. And obviously that touches in into like, you know, little, psychoanalytic theories but just the way that they have the two of them framed and where jimmy stewart is just perceived as you know kind of the 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 child in that scene and elster is just you know like this paternal figure telling him you know this is you know what we're going to go ahead and do and you know i need you to go ahead and do this and 
And then you just have the, um, like you have in so many other Hitchcock films, just like the, just the, um, uh, the phallic symbols that are just thrown throughout, like in, in the case where you just have the, the giant cranes and you just see Elster's giant empire outside and, uh, just, yeah, just a really, really classic Hitchcock scene. Yeah. Uh, I didn't get a chance to watch this, but I did come across a YouTube video that sort of it had the maybe the blocking of that scene and the different relationships between the two actors in terms of positioning, as you had touched on, that I might have to check out and take a look at. Yeah, it, it, it's um, so yeah, to kind of like walk uh, to walk everybody through. It's we first meet Elster, and he's talking about how his wife uh, she. She's potentially possessed by a, a dead woman, uh, uh, more or less, and uh, we're, we're finding finding this story out. And he uh, is hiring Jimmy Stewart to follow his wife around and find out what she does with her day. Where is she going? And and uh, Jimmy Stewart, I guess they were they were old buddies, uh, I guess from college or um, what have you. And Jimmy Stewart at this point is a retired cop because he. Uh, is on disability. Um, uh, he now suffers from vertigo, so he's kind of acting as a private eye. But he's like, no, I'm not going to go ahead and take this case. And just the way that they have the two of them framed, Jimmy Stewart is, you know, pr- um, who's a pretty pretty tall guy. Uh, they have him framed at a lower at a lower level where they have this guy Elster who's kind of in the background, up uh, up on a couple like stairs, and just kind of looking down on him, you know, as he's doing that. But all the while, like a this is kind of like a shipping yard and they're just, it's loaded with, with ships and cranes and other phallic symbols to kind of like present Elster in this position of like a real immense power. And it's juxtaposed when we have Scotty or, um, Johnny O or, uh, Ferguson or what the, one of the many names that we have with Jimmy Stewart's character who's clearly very much emasculated and he has no power. He has no strength or masculinity. And, uh, it's juxtaposed with this guy with tons of it, you know, including, you know, with the, the grand shipyard and everything. So it's just a very, very powerful, uh, scene very early in the film to kind of like set the mood. Like at the end of the day, this movie is all about, you know, Jimmy Stewart trying to get, trying to get a little bit of his, uh, his groove back in a, in a way of, uh, in a way of speaking. And as we find out that really the only way to do it is for him to kind of, uh, fall in love and, uh, create a dead girl. So, the the fatal woman, if yes, you will. Yes. Yes. <laughs> what about in terms of in terms of writing? Again, I'm I'm not I don't have a lot to offer other than I will say that my absolute favorite quote from this film is from the scene in the Sequoias that Kim no- Novak delivers when she's sort of there's the cross section of a tree that's been cut down and it has um, different demarcations of of years, the Battle of Hastings and. Mm-hmm. I forget even what the the others are referenced at points, but it sort of gauges those as rings in the tree, which obviously has been around for, for quite some time. And so she points out, um, she points out some, somewhere in here I was born and there I died. It was just a moment for you. You took no notice, which I thought was just outstanding, outstanding writing. And I wish it sort of, service the story a little a little bit more in in totality but i that was kind of the standout quote and the previous times that i've had caught bits and pieces of the film this is this is the moment that i had caught and was fascinated with yeah the get-go. and uh yeah i mean that scene and that that di- that piece of dialogue specifically is so famous and um before i had ever even seen this movie i had seen that clip and 
I think the the first time that comes to mind was a movie called Twelve Monkeys, and you have um, the actor Bruce Willis and Madeline oh, Stowe. That's right. And Maybe they, that's what it was. Ah, that's what it's from. No wonder. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> they're in a, they're in a movie theater, and um, you know Vertigo is playing, and and they had that scene. And it's funny because that specific scene actually has a ton of weight in in the movie Twelve Monkeys too, and it's just it's brilliant. And um, yeah, and if you haven't ever seen that movie, definitely go out and see Twelve Monkeys immediately. Which again, I think that's also another story that's based on a French piece of uh, art as well. So um, definite parallels that exist between those two. I'm glad that you brought that up because I had completely completely forgot about that. Yeah, yeah, but that's great. Ah, oh, that yeah, that's a perfect tie-in to Terry Gilliam's weird, <laughs> yeah, weird world. But in terms of aside from that bit of dialogue, you're more of the writer, this the screenwriter. Is there anything else that kind of stands out for you in the structure of the writing, or anything technically, or in terms of story? So. When I when I think about that movie, and I and I and I often try to think of a lot of movies in in the screenplay itself. Um, I, admittedly, I've never ever read the that screenplay. In fact, I've never read any Hitchcock uh, screenplay because of the. And I think maybe a lot of it has to do with I'm, I'm more fascinated with his storyboards. And if you've ever seen a Hitchcock storyboard, I mean, he maps out the entire movie shot for shot. And I think that's far more interesting than than like the the bits of dialogue itself but the movie i mean it's a very very subtle thing and i i mean it is definitely one of the things that would be in the screenplay but uh, just the alfred hitchcock storyboard in general but i love the the moment after uh scotty has saved uh saved her from um you know jumping into the san francisco bay and he brings her back to her back to the apartment and the kind of like the it's never ever said but just the way that uh, some of the scenes are kind of shown you get the idea that yeah he definitely took her clothes off and he <laughs> right. definitely saw her naked and and just when uh just kind of like the looks that they exchange and it's just the whole the whole the whole thing is just so dark and twisted and it's just such a a fascinating piece of like character study and like alfred hitchcock um but I, I love that scene uh, because it really, even, you know, once you get beyond the uh, the voyeur aspect of the whole thing, it's just, it's just a, it's just a fascinating scene and just the way that, um, that, that everything is conveyed just through a series of looks. You, you see Jimmy Stewart looking at something and then you see what that something is and then you see Jimmy Stewart's look again and, and it's something that Alfred Hitchcock is obviously very, very famous for. I mean, he's not, he's utilized that in you know in a multitude of films where you it's kind of like a series of threes, right? You you see he shows you what you you know he shows you a character and a character looking at something, and then you see that something, and then you see how the character then reacts to it, and it's just it's it's just very very moving and very powerful cinema, and. And I'm sure plenty of other filmmakers have done it, but that was just something that he he made so. You, I mean, that was just so stereotypically Alfred Hitchcock. And so when I think of that movie in in any context, I mean, those are those are the things that I think about. Um, you know, but the the way the entire film is crafted is very very beautiful. But the the whole idea of 
suspense versus surprise and and that's what that's that's what he does so i mean it's he's more interested in what what the audience is going to think when they know the same thing so we we know these things before the character does and that's what creates suspense it's not like a surprise where a surprise is you know when when you get that that thing that jumps and we're all scared simultaneously but that's not that's never really interested Alfred Hitchcock. I mean, even if you go back and look at the movie uh, Psycho, the the famous scene where the detective is going up the stairs, and then you and they have a different uh, different shot from on top of the stairs, and you see a door open, and and then you see the the detective still continuing to go up the stairs, and you're like, oh shoot, you know, we know something's up there. He doesn't. The suspense is, well, what's going to happen when he finds out that somebody is there? And of course, it's um, you know, mother and, you know, she slashes, slashes the shit out of him and then he falls down the stairs and then she jumps on him and kills him. And of course, you know, um, but that I mean that, that's just, you know, another movie, but it's something that he also, you know, those are the type of things that he would do in vertigo. So from, a anyway, just go back to a screen play aspect. Those are things that, that I'm drawn to. And, but when it comes to Alfred Hitchcock, yeah, it, I mean, it's all about the storyboard, you know, re, you know, look at those storyboards they're, they're, they're beautiful. I really love the moments of silence in the film and the lack of dialogue at certain elements really, I think, contributed. That's something definitely missing from a lot of today's film. Like there's too much, there's always action, you know what I mean? And I think it's nice to have those more, those slower moments where there's no actual dialogue. Kind of reminded me a lot of Dunkirk. I got sort of, a that's immediately where my mind went as a f- recent film that really was minimal on the dialogue. Mm-hmm. But I really thought again that it really contributed to the brilliance of the overall, you know, message and film itself. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, now, like obviously, Alfred Hitchcock. By the time that he did Vertigo, he you know he had been making movies for decades. So I mean, he even had silent films. You know, when he was you know he he had directed silent movies, oodles of them, quite frankly. But yeah, Vertigo. There are long uh, periods of time in the film where there is absolutely no. You know, like I said, the, 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 you know, where he's just falling around all over San Francisco, you've got a section of like 10 or 11 minutes without dialogue. And then you just get a, you know, like, well, you know, what painting is she looking at? Oh, that's, uh, the, you know, Carlotta. And then you got another like five minutes after that of like no dialogue in the movie. And then when he's like creating, um, you know, creating Judy in, in the image, um, you've got again, more scenes where you just see him just trying to deconstruct her and, and, and mold her in the image that he wants. And yeah, so there's just, yeah, just loads of no dialogue in that movie. And uh, to uh, bring it to Dunkirk, yeah, definite parallels in that, in that sense. I forgot to mention one, another shot, actually, that I got sidetracked when we, and before we when jumped into writing is uh, sort of the end, at, or not the end, but the scenes from the bell tower the sort of overhead shot down the stairs, looking down the sort of omniscient shot there. That was great. And I think they utilized the dolly zoom again. Yeah, that was to make that really disorienting. Yeah. And that was the, uh, the scene that I was referring to a little while ago. And I was going to come back that, that specific scene when you have kind of like the, the staircase when they're going up and they utilize that, that vertigo moment, that's where they, they created like a little miniature for that. But obviously the, the dolly where they kind of pull in and then zoom out, um, 
that's something that, yeah, obviously he created and been utilized in so many other films. I think of uh, the movie Poltergeist with that, that long like hallway scene um, and Jaws. Um, just the, tons of movies have subsequently utilized that. But yeah, the, the use of it in Vertigo, definitely. But the, at that, um, at the, the mission going up, uh, going up the stairs and then looking down and you had that, that shot, that's, that's probably, yeah, that's my favorite like single shot in the entire film. Just awesome. And then followed up with her jumping over and then the, uh, the nun like ringing the bell. Um, just, yeah, just, just so eerie and just so haunting and the score just to obviously, you know, kind of going all over the place, but the, <laughs> the score in the movie is just also so like perfectly haunting and, uh, Bernard Herrmann, just, it's it just, just another brilliant, brilliant, uh, piece of music that he created. Really great use of the strings. Mm-hmm. And that tension, that really high pitched sort of tension. I had read or heard somewhere that some of the, like the sound design and things like that are mimicked on sort of high pitched um, animals that are in distress and things of that nature. Um, I don't know if you've ever, like, have you ever heard a rabbit call or anything like that? It's kind of a high pitched, like, wah, wah. <laughs> I think it's reminiscent of that. Interesting, no. Um, but uh, as it being some sort of maybe even like evolutionary thing that these mm-hmm. sort of high pitched mm-hmm. sounds, like there's a there's a there's a reason for this in terms of like being alerted to predators or or something like that. Like an injured animal mm-hmm. means that predators are around, or like if an animal screams out. So I don't know. You know, I don't have a study. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> to yeah. back to back this up, but I had had read that, and I think that's interesting and. That is Certainly, interesting. at the surface, there appears to be you know a decent logical reason for there being some type of mechanism like that. Yeah, you'll have to find out where you got that from. I'm definitely, I'm really intrigued and wanting to read that myself. That's interesting because I think, especially in Psycho, the ring, the ring yeah. that we all mm-hmm. know, like that. I think that's definitely a, probably the standout example of of that string element mm-hmm. creating creating the tension. Yeah. Speaking of other unease. Other other moments. Uh, last time we spoke, we talked a lot about like diegetic sounds, and uh, this is another movie where you have a you've got tons of it. Where just the the sounds of uh, you know him you know just walking and just hearing the footsteps, or because um, again at the end of the day, I mean a lot of this movie is just about following somebody. So just you know having those you know the, those kind of just the the eeriness of footsteps and things like that are you know very very powerful so but hitchcock was always very fascinated with diegetic noise and um this movie is obviously no exception to that i actually thought it was kind of funny the sound that madeline made when she hit the hit the roof and the first time (laughs) i don't know there was something about it it just sounded kind of funny like it wasn't what i was expecting I mean, there's it to sound like. I mean, of course, like, this is 1958. So, yeah, I mean, there's a lot of comical uh, <laughs> bits with people falling in there, and the the sounds that they make. Uh, the poor uh, cop at the beginning of the of the movie. Um, but I loved. I I, <laughs> I just loved uh, 19 uh, 1950s uh, special effects and uh, the the idea of somebody falling and just the way that it's all it's all framed on camera. And it's just it's it's kind of comical by today's standards and. Um, I, I, what I love especially about this movie is even, uh, Jimmy Stewart falling off the, off like the step ladder and how he just kind of like has a very, 
flamboyant and pathetic like fall into like Mitch's arms. Um, it it just follows you know another very very um, weak uh, fall attempt that Jimmy Stewart had in Rear Window when he falls off the ledge, and uh, just also very comical scene when you compare. And I, I'm curious to know what it would have been like in you know uh, late '50s uh, cinema if people were kind of like, how do they do that? I don't know. Yeah, you bring up the scene with the policeman falling, and I thought it was kind of interesting. You could sort of tell that it's almost like they had um, superimposed part of the frame, like they had taken two different frames and like superimposed, because there there's even like a line you can sort of tell. So to the left of the frame, it is, it's probably takes up three quarters of the frame, and that's where the policeman has died. Mm-hmm. But then you can, in the right-hand side, there's kind of a, like I said, probably a quarter of the way through the frame, there's sort of a, a, a curvy line. And I, it kind of looks like there's some type of superimposition or I don't know if there was maybe a matte painting as part of that or... I mean, they definitely use a lot of like matte everything. Um, yeah, I mean, even like the backgrounds, uh, I mean, you, you will definitely have some like matting that exists uh, to go ahead and create things. And that's, I mean, I mean they had to do that back in the, you know, um, you know, they didn't really have the, the use of, you know, CGI or anything if, you know, where they were, if they were on location or whatnot. So yeah, yeah, definitely. Yeah. You could tell, I think as well, some of the mats showed up in the roof chase as well at the beginning, but beyond that, I couldn't quite tell. It seemed, you know, it was really sort of hard to tell. I think sometimes the, the sort of establishing shots at the mission also seemed a little bit funny and I couldn't tell the the tower I, th- real. I think there were, there was something that they utilized at the tower if I from something I read now I know that um, they, they there had to be a tower in the only towers that existed in California at least in the northern like California uh, and Catholic churches were like the missions but I think they added to it or there was definitely a matte shot when they were looking down. That much is true um, after she had died and, and you had the people kind of like coming over. And right now I'm talking using my hands, which probably makes <laughs> no sense to those uh, that are listening right now. Um, but yeah, so there were definitely shots where they there there was some um, you know, where they were definitely uh, adding some adding some stuff into it. But um, yeah, I'm just thinking about that. Yeah. Um, where were we? I had, we were kind of talking about, I guess, the writing or no, we were like out in the sound. We had jumped from writing to sound and sort of how that played a role. Mm -hmm. But I think we had sort of wrapped up that before I jumped back into this. Yeah. We're going to production. Yeah. Most of my conversations will go in circles anyway. So, (laughs) right. I mean, that's that's sort of the idea of the whole, the whole ethos of the podcast too. So, (laughs) Um, I guess in terms of sort of chapters to this podcast, my the last thing that I wanted to really delve into was the psycho sort of a psychoanalysis or or schizoanalysis, um, kind of delving into the themes and some maybe even some weird interpretations. Mm-hmm. When in because I'm admittedly not a giant, huge like psychology scholar by any means, but when did the whole concept of psychoanalytical theory really kind of like take place? Um, in 
in as far as like America's concerned? Like when were, when were we brought to the to the public as far as like being able to kind of like psychoanalyze? Well, just giving a quick sort of quick and dirty history. Freud is mm-hmm. the father of psychoanalysis. And then later on, you have figures sort of like the the 60s or so, like the structuralist, post-structuralist type readings. And then I think uh, Jacques Lacan is a French psychoanalyst. And I think that's that has really informed more contemporary right. His original, uh, like, readings of film. There's a lot of like original thought involves a little bit of like like edible complex right yeah I mean, oh yeah, that's okay. that's yeah. absolutely like the, plays a role that's yeah. like the meat and potatoes of like psycho psycho uh, analytical that's theory definitely a big a big part of it um also you know ego id super ego mm-hmm. mm-hmm. um and even to tie that back into you mentioned psycho earlier somebody has a really interesting theory about different parts of the hotel representing different parts of the <laughs> This one's the super ego, the ego and the the id. The id is maybe like the basement or something. I don't, you know, yeah, super yeah. ego is the upstairs. Mm-hmm. And you know, and I know that Alfred Hitchcock was fascinated with that. And but admittedly, I'm just not not super well versed with it. All I what I can definitely tell is there's some heavy edible like complex shit that's going on in this movie. I mean, obviously, Elster isn't his father, and Madeline isn't his mother. But, but there are some definite, um, like smack you in the face, you know, kind of symbolism that is going on throughout this whole film. And it's, yeah, I mean, so there, there, there's definitely, and I know, and I know that Alfred Hitchcock was kind of interested in, in, in that, you know, in those theories. So, yeah. I think maybe the best way to think about it too, is that, these are, this is sort of a postmodern idea as well. It's just the the messages or the ways that you can read the film don't necessarily have to be intentional, right? There, um, there are even sort of subliminal and sublimated reasons that Hitchcock probably did certain things. <laughs> you know what I mean? I think you mentioned the the Grace Kelly thing and always trying to recreate the blonde yeah mm-hmm. yeah i mean he was obsessed with blondes when you know if it wasn't grace kelly then obviously kim novak to janet lee to tippy hedron and yeah and but yeah never ever got her back right i mean i think there was a there was a time where he thought that uh they were going to be able to use grace kelly for like another movie like in the 60s and in fact like prince rainier was on board for it but something happened and it didn't happen and i don't know like what movie that was or <laughs> um but yeah i mean a lot of it in many ways yeah you know when it comes to um you know just the whole use of his of his ideal you know blonde actress you know that that he that he had to have in all of his films and i think we'll touch on this too in terms of maybe there's some sort of psychoanalytic psychoanalytic reading of of hitchcock and his desires and maybe mm-hmm. sexual issues that he was maybe <laughs> subliminally were subliminally communicated throughout the film itself. Mm-hmm. But I want to take a moment to touch back on sort of on sort of Zizek and to place him in context as well. So Zizek is very heavily influenced by Lacan and uh, and Hegel 
and then also also Marx as well. So that's sort of what his analysis is is geared towards. So looking at the form of the film and things of that nature, and again using it as a way to sort of critique our modern society, or you know what I mean. That's sort of where where he's coming from. So I will touch on some of the similar approaches and ideas that he brings up, but maybe in a different context. Cause I think there's another French thinker, Baudrillard that also really kind of smacked me in the face when I was really unpacking the film with the idea of the double or, you know, re- the recreation creating mm-hmm. sort of, um, sort of the sim simulacrum right. element of basically. So <laughs> The character that he falls in love with, so Madeline slash, what's her name? Judy. <laughs> Judy. Um, so the my idea was, so she, Madeline is a made up character. There is like, he thinks that she's real, but she's not. And mm-hmm. he falls in love with this sort of false idea of the sort of, this simulacrum, the simulated version yep. of the real Madeline. And then he re- tries to, he's not satisfied by the real Judy. He has to make her into the simulacrum again of, of Madeline before he can, you know, sort of consummate the relationship. And I thought that was sort of an interesting reading in, in the in the context of Baudrillard's ideas of the simulation and simulacra. Yeah. And even still, like when he's completely like changed, uh, changed her her dress and changed her hair. She's still not there <laughs> until she puts her hair up in exactly the same way. And it's just, yeah. Little side note. I stayed in that hotel actually. Oh, that's cool. Yeah. It's now actually called hotel vertigo. <laughs> Perfect. Uh, yeah. Cashing in on the, the a- cache. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah. And they have fun little, like the, they have a kind of like a vertigo staircase in the hotel now. Oh, nice. Yeah. It's- but, uh, to look, I wanted to start, as well at the beginning of the film, because the first scene with Midge and Scotty really brought out, this is where I was like, it was like, woo, 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 jumping out at me about, okay, so he is wearing a corset, Mm -hmm. which I thought was interesting. A a corset as opposed to a girdle, I think maybe you would refer to it as a girdle, even though a girdle does have a feminine connotation i think a corset definitely is far more like that's i mean you couldn't even call it a brace you know it's a it's a corset you know like yeah too many guys wear corsets <laughs> you know what i mean so mm. that was a big clue of okay something there's some kind of weird sexual thing too plus the way that he carried the cane around and sort of his gestures with the cane definitely like the phallic obviously the phallic imagery of it Mm-hmm. But the f- also the fact that he had to use a cane was sort of an indication as well of his his vulnerability, his femininity, his weakness. Mm-hmm. And don't forget what is she uh, what is she uh, drawing? But like a brazier, right? I mean, so <laughs> that as well, right? Yeah. So we see a, a bra, and he's like, "Oh, oh, what's that?" Yeah. <laughs> yep. And then she's like, "You're a big boy now." You yeah. Know? So, um, yeah. So that definitely, that there, and plus, okay, so there's that, but also whenever he is on the stepping step ladder and he has his little vertigo moment, 
and falls into her arms. Again, sort of, he's vulnerable. He's we he he, he can't sort of get it up. Mm-hmm. Yep, no, and, <laughs> you know what I mean. He's got an, an, there's an impotence sort of reference going on there too. Mm-hmm. And then she also kind of what did she say? You're with mommy. You're you're a big boy. Yeah. Um, yeah. So I mean, there were a couple little lines where I mean, Midge. I mean, like kind of her nickname is like Mother Midge anyway, right? So I mean, she and. And we find out that they they dated and it didn't happen. So it's just a form of like a maternal, like right off the bat, he's already rejected a maternal figure uh, in the film. Let's see. Uh, then I'm, I'm just kind of like going through my notes and I, I just have written a little weird that he undresses her. It's a little, so that's yeah. that scene you were, yeah. were talking about earlier. It's a lot of weird that you know uh, that he undressed her, right? That was kind of creepy. There was a and, lot, but, of- and there was that moment where they look at each other, and she puts it together because she's not in her clothes, and she sees her clothes hanging, <laughs> and um, and then it's just kind of like this this awkwardness that exists between the two. It's like, and because I think back when I mean in the fifties, we have to also remember they had the codes, right? I mean this is this is in a time where. I don't think you could even really show like a man and woman like in bed together, you know, in, in films and they had, yeah. I mean, so there was a lot of things that were going on where you you couldn't, you couldn't do this or you couldn't show that, but it was very, very much implied of, yep. He definitely, definitely took her clothes off. (laughs) I also have what WTF is this doing with Judy? A little creepy much, creepy as, I said creepy ass fetish, and then I ask, uh, did, did Hitch have a weird blonde fetish or what? Yeah. Coming through. Um, but then I'm thinking, go to go back to this idea of her being the copy, the, the simulacrum, and sort of the, to him, again, the copy of Madeline is more real and desirable to him than both midge but also damn it why am i blanking on i know it starts with the j judy judy yeah um but yeah so just that idea that's kind of the i that's maybe the biggest thing that stood out to me in terms of kind of the simulated weirdness and also just re- the recreation in the second half of the film of the scene of the original like that, there was a, a, you know, they're simulating the original event, the original death mm-hmm. yeah. as well. Yep. But we, the, the moment where it's all like fully like, you know, uh, where he, when he finally is able to get it up, if you will, the, when she comes out of the bathroom and there's that, that, that kind of like that green, like smoke filter, uh, that, or that little fog filter that's going on. It's kind of similar to a, like an earlier filter that was used in the movie, but the, the green one, obviously, the green symbolizes, you know, uh, rebirth, but the little fog, she looks like a ghost. And he's now finally, finally found, you know, he finally created a dead woman, um, which um, if you ever get a chance, definitely read the, the Truffaut, like Hitchcock uh, interview and where Hitchcock talks about this movie. It's kind of a form of necrophilia um, where it's just about, you know, like about a man having sex with a dead woman. <laughs> It was funny. I actually listened to that specific part of the interview earlier today. Oh, did you really? Yeah. 
It was a dead woman. <laughs> but uh, let's see. Zizek had a really good quote about this being about her. Um, damn it, what was it? It was something about like he had some phrase like the male libidinal economy or some shit that I can't, <laughs> can't quite articulate, but I thought was really sort of funny and a, a great. I don't know. Just to, it sounded good to me. I liked it. <laughs> I was just really impressed that the uh, like the, the ten minute video meme. He was like in the like in the shots, <laughs> and um, I mean that alone, just like the production value. I'm like, hey, this is pretty good stuff. The whole film, and again, we're, this is, we're talking about um, what was it? A Pervert's Guide to Cinema. And so Zizek puts himself inside very notable scenes from a bunch of different films that he discusses. Mm-hmm. Just to give some context. Um, but so any any sort of thematic, psychoanalytic comments that, that you want to contribute before we maybe step into something else? Um, short of the... Well, yeah, no. Short of what we've already covered, I've got nothing further that would be remotely interesting to add. One point... I'll tell you... Just on this, on a sort of surface level, I was a little bit thrown by the the twist in the film. Whenever it's revealed that it was sort of that she was a double of of Madeline of the real wife. Of when Elster. when she when she tells us more or less, or when he finds out, or when she tells us. Okay. I, um, but and I think what threw me was, and I think this has been discussed quite a bit, is the scene. So he follows her to the hotel and he goes inside you know he's he sees her get out of the car go into the hotel then he goes in after her but the the person at the desk that runs the hotel doesn't seem to have seen her pass by yeah so i mean that was before that's when she was still madeline right and she was uh, like the ghost carlotta but yeah and that was uh the mckittrick hotel yes and exactly. yeah that's one of those scenes that it's it's almost and Hitchcock has obviously used it in multiple movies and it's like the phrase that you know, is kind of coined and thought with, but it's kind of a MacGuffin, right? Because we're, you know, is, is this, are we watching a ghost story? Is this kind of, you know, what we're, you know, like, is she possessed? Because, and then, you know, like he goes into the hotel and, and she's like, yeah, she, there's, she hasn't come in or she hasn't been here and then go up to the room, not in there. And the car is gone. And she's like, what car? So, we're then left to just kind of throw that entire scene out the window because it really at the end holds no relevance right. at all. I mean, it, it's, it's, it's a pointless scene, you know, it, it's a MacGuffin, you know, it doesn't that, that moment, although very, very eerie. And it's like, Oh shit, maybe she, maybe she is possessed by, I guess we, we find out later. Well, it's a complete freaking lie. Well, where the hell did she go? Right. <laughs> you know, like, um, you know, what, yeah, what was going on there? So if, you know, thematically, um, I'm sure there's definitely some subtext, but on a, on a very, very literal sense, that, that scene is essentially utterly meaningless. I had read that even Hitchcock had referred to the scene as an icebox scene, as one that you would sort of, so the implication being that you would had, have gone home and you're getting something out of the icebox and you ask yourself, wait, wait a minute. Yeah. Mm-hmm. What happened here? <laughs> yeah. But I wonder if, um, I'm kind of curious, there's a couple of other weird theories I have. I'd also read, someone speculated that 
this is Scotty. The whole movie is Scotty's dream or fantasy or some weird element to do with maybe he, because we never see him get down from the ledge at the beginning of the film. Mm -hmm. It were just sort of brought in and made to assume that that happened. Uh, I mean, it's a very, very interesting theory. Um, I mean, would um, definitely um, give it more of like a Lynchian sort of weird or fantasy or a sixth sense. He was dead at the whole time. (laughs) Um, but yeah, no, um, interesting. I mean, it's a very, very unique, uh, very fascinating take. I don't, I mean, so much of the movie, there is very, very, like, it's very much a dream state and there's, um, or a nightmare really is what the movie, you know, uh, very much is, but it would be, it would be fascinating. Um, but yeah, I mean, just, yeah, interesting, but I don't, I don't really think of it in that sense, but definitely good fodder for discussion. Also in, in my head canon, the necklace that she wears Okay, so we um, originally she goes to the museum, views the portrait painting of Carlotta. Carlotta is wearing the necklace. So the whole story behind Carlotta was that she was whatever, sort of this rich man's wife that was... I guess we could kind of probably tell, tell people <laughs> what this movie is actually about. We've been talking about why this movie is so great, but not really explain what the film is. But so the it's basically... So Elster's wife is claiming to be or he tells this detective who's suffering from vertigo like there's something going on with his wife i want you to follow my wife and figure out what the hell's going on so he follows her he thinks he lets him know that he thinks that she may be possessed by this carlotta valdez right yeah carlotta valdez yeah the ghost of this woman that lived over 100 years ago who as it turns out is related to her but she has no idea who she is. But as we later find out, it's all a sham. It's it's bullshit. The whole thing was Elster just basically wanting to kill his own wife um, and to kind of get away with, what was it, his money? Um, I forget, like, what was his motive? Why, why was he killing her? I can't remember. I don't but, even... But I want to say it was just basically... I just, I just want a new wife, dog, yeah, all just, right? Yeah, he just wanted <sighs> it, you know, so he, he hires this, this girl to go ahead and masquerade as his wife and... Um, yeah, his, his real wife dies and Jimmy Stewart is completely heartbroken because he, you know, he, uh, was un he was unable to man up in the moment that he needed it most because he she was would, impotent. He was impotent. Yeah. Uh, he couldn't climb a flight of stairs in the, in this tower and she goes all the way and then jumps. And so he's completely devastated and he continues to go around, uh, San Francisco uh, in search of now an actual ghost and, uh, you know, trying to rec- you know, see where she, you know, were, uh, retrace some steps. He goes into like a shop she had been into. And then, uh, he's just, he's staring into a window where he sees this brunette walk by who shares a very striking resemblance to this girl that he fell in love with. He follows her around. He, uh, tries, he befriends her and very creepily very very creepily and then through a series of very awkward scenes of basically forces her to dress as this dead woman change her appearance and makeup as this dead woman and we then find out that 
she actually is uh, this woman. And, and then it gets even more fucked up. And yeah, and we find out the end So that's, a, you know, so basically just, yeah, that's guy hires a cop to follow his wife and the cop falls in love with this woman. She dies and then he falls in love with another woman and tries to recreate her in that woman's image only to find out that she is the woman that he thought had died. And then she really dies at the end of the movie. <laughs> and he is then finally cured of his, his vertigo. He is now able to fully get it up at the end because now he's created a woman in another woman's image. Right? I mean, that's the... Yeah, you nailed it, man. Boom. But I, I don't know, like I said, I had this headcanon theory that... So whenever she goes to observe the, the painting, the portrait of Carletta, she has the necklace on that... The why it would belong. I assume it belonged to it had to belong to the wife because that's how he makes the connection at the end of the film mm-hmm. that she was in on it. Yep, and Elster gave her that necklace as kind of you know a thank you, and that you know, um, or and she kind of held on to it as a I guess a, like a, a trophy or uh, a memory of it. But yeah, but I had this. So my head canon is that that necklace is cursed, and that's why it's cursed through either. Carlotta, like something to do with her tragic death and then the death of the real Madeline. And then obviously she's wearing it when she dies. But I don't remember if Madeline actually wore the necklace when she when she died. I don't think so. Wasn't she wearing the necklace in the or was she just wearing a necklace in Ernie's? She was definitely wearing a necklace, I believe. Pretty sure. Um... I know they both have the same hair, Carlotta and her. I mean, because they, they go ahead and do the little the little bun with a swirl in it. But yeah, she was wearing a necklace, but I don't yeah. Um I don't know, it sounds like a good opportunity for, you know, you to go ahead and create your own <laughs> your own uh, little uh necklace sequel. Right. I also did enjoy the different elements, the spiral that symbolism throughout the film and I like how he tied it into the very the hairstyle that Madeline is wearing and Carlotta mm-hmm. and the sort of the the imagery from the opening sequence or not the opening sequence but the title sequence mm-hmm. and even I guess his dream as well his nightmare which I thought was really cool for the time that was kind of like the a, animation yeah that was yeah. like a sort of yeah. LSD acid psychedelic trip mm-hmm. almost and then with the flowers and yeah it's just this his face superimposed on all of that mm-hmm. was really well done another reason why i think i would have absolutely been floored by this film if i had seen it upon its initial release i can't yeah i can't even imagine what you know if you were one of the the few people that did see it in its time and I think there was even like a time where it was kind of like lost and it had to go through like, I guess, a couple decades worth of um, like revitalization or whatnot. I think it came back like in the in the 90s. But um, yeah, I can't even imagine what this what, what seeing this movie like in 1958 would have been. And I think part of the reason why they said it didn't necessarily do as well had uh, at least Halford Hitchcock blamed it a, a bit to do with Jimmy Stewart being a little bit older um in this role and mean what like just a few years earlier he had done rear window with with grace kelly but you know um in that movie he was still pretty he was kind of old when you compare like uh you know like this i don't know this 50 something jimmy stewart with this 24 year old grace kelly or you know this 26 year old kim novak like four years later so 
that was at least part of his his theory, but it also could also, you know, deal with the fact that again, just to mold the whole concept of it's not really an autobiographical story, but there's definite parallel between Scotty and Alfred Hitchcock and just an obsession, you know, like over this over blonde women. Right. It's and being a little bit too old for them. <laughs> so is this is this Hitchcock working through his own like inability to function like is is this his own impotence is this a story about that i mean it if you if you make the case you can make a very very compelling argument i think and i really don't want to go there but it, <laughs> it's hard to kind of like not see it. and i love i love alfred hitchcock work i think as much as you know anybody else but or probably more than most people but i, I mean you can definitely if you wanted to you could probably make a very, very convincing like thesis essay on on that, especially with I guess. Do you know much? I I don't know much about the history of him with his leading w- women, other than I do know there was a bit of con- controversy, in particular with Tippi Hedren, and I think they came out with that film, the the something girl. Or see, I I watched a little bit of that film, and but I didn't get through it. Um, yeah, same. I didn't finish it. Yeah. What I do know is that he and, well, he and specifically what we're going to talk about, like Tippy, is at that point, you know, he no longer had Grace Kelly and um, I can't believe, is it Vera Miles who was also in Psycho who... That uh, sounds right. She was a, she was in The Searchers and, um, but she was the original pick to play Judy slash Madeline in that. But anyway, he had gone through a series of different different blondes and tippy you know um was a little bit more you know at that time you know she was a little bit more uh, of that era you know like she she was a new age woman she wasn't a little more old-fashioned so maybe some of hitchcock's previous what he might think of as charm didn't really you know play off and i know that they did a couple movies but shoot you know like last year tippy dropped like this crazy bombshell that like he like attempted like like sexual assault on her and and was he the the Harvey Weinstein of his day? Right. I'm good evening. Yeah, I I really I don't even want to <laughs> the casting couch. Yeah. Um, with Hitch. Yeah. I mean, if any of that's true, that that it's very very tragic, but and very you know uh, unfortunate. And but what I can say is that he had a very, very clear vision of everything that he wanted to film. And he had an idea, and this is how I want my movies to look. And and maybe, you know, like he believed that blondes looked, you know, they, they tested better, they looked better on film. But, I mean, he, yeah, I mean, Hitchcock and his blondes, I mean, they, you know, he, they all had it, you know. Um, but then even, even later, you know, like in some of his later films, he would still continue to use blondes. But I don't think after, after the, I want to say what the birds was probably like his last true masterpiece because he did Marnie and Marnie. Oh, I think that's what it is. I think uh, he thought he was going to get Grace Kelly to come back for Marnie and something happened, didn't work out. And so he had Tippy again. I think I could be completely wrong, but there was, there was talk where like Grace Kelly was going to come back for this role and then it all fell through and. I think he went with Tippy again. I think. I don't know. Trying to play back my history on. There was a time where I just, I was completely obsessed with anything relating to Alfred Hitchcock. And actually, uh, 
you know, completely off the, the realm of uh, the intention of this podcast, but that's actually what was the first conversation that uh, connected my, my now wife and I is we both had like a, a very like strong uh, passion for Alfred Hitchcock films. And we just, we just talked up one night and it's like, Holy cow, I didn't know, you know, anybody else really liked his, his work as much as I did. And actually you should probably have her, uh, <laughs> right. she's, she's far more articulate with this stuff, but yeah, she, uh, is every bit an Alfred Hitchcock fan as I am really jumping off topic, but when you guys are having a girl, right? Yeah, we are. We are having, how, how far away is this? Uh, uh, we are looking about a month and a half, actually. Yeah. Oh, so wow. she, yeah, she's due March fourth quarter, man. Yeah, I know, I know. Yeah, <laughs> hold it up. Hold yeah. up the fourth. <laughs> uh, we are. Yeah, March fifteenth is uh, her her due day. Yeah, and we're gonna have a little a little girl. Have you decided on a name yet? We do have a name. I can't. Unfortunately, <laughs> yeah, you're not gonna not gonna bust it out on the podcast. Yeah, but. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, but the only thing I can say it is a. It is a um, gender-neutral name, so and we we had talked very very briefly until we realized that yeah that's a horrible name. But we're like, if we had a boy, we could name him Alfred, and we're like, no, we can't. <laughs> um, but yeah, so yeah, completely yeah, um, unrelated to anything that we're talking about right now. But yeah, we're gonna have a we're gonna have a little girl here soon enough. We're pretty excited about it. Definitely wasn't planned, but here we are, you know, right. and we're gonna. We're going to rock the hell out of this parenting thing. <laughs> nice. Bring up a future generation of Alfred Hitchcock right, fan. There you go. Learn the, learn the techniques, the, the suspense. Mm-hmm. Oh my God. And I completely apologize that, you know, uh, that we're kind of like segueing into this, but talked about um, that we stayed in that hotel. In fact, uh, the year before went out and uh, went. The child was... The child I, was created in the hotel. No, no, no. The child was not created in the hotel. <laughs> but I did propose to my uh, to my wife in San Francisco. As a matter of fact, yeah, um, by the bay underneath the Golden Golden Gate Bridge. No, no, Sequoia. No, Sequoia trees. it would have been great. Uh, <laughs> the whole proposal was a nightmare, though, because of the fact that I, I had all these great ideas. I'm going to go ahead and do this. I'm going to do that. I just woke her up one morning at five o'clock. I said, "Grab your shit. We're hopping on a plane. We're flying to San Francisco." And we had been together for seven years, so she had no idea what was coming. And so I'm like, okay, I'm going to go ahead and do it. Uh, I'm going to do it by the Golden Gate Bridge. Or I'm going to do it in Chinatown when they when they light the paper lanterns at night. I'm like, it's going to be beautiful. Of course, we got into Chinatown in the afternoon, so there was no paper lanterns. And then by the time we got to the Golden Gate... Oh, and we were also thinking about like the... Or I was thinking about the uh, the Painted Ladies uh, row of houses that you have on like the, the opening credits for... Um, Whatever the hell that um, that TV show from the from the eighties and nineties. Oh, Full House. Full House. Thank you very much. But that park right now is basically a dark dog park. I mean, there's just dogs everywhere and there's shit everywhere, and there was <laughs> scaffolding on one of the painted lady houses. So I'm like, all right, so it's gonna be the Golden Gate Bridge. But as a funny thing happens about five o'clock in San Francisco, the temperature temperature drops about thirty degrees, and the fog comes in. We couldn't see the bridge even when we were at the Golden Gate Bridge, oh, and of wow. course, yeah, it was just a day you're trip. Like, God damn it! Yeah, so I'm like, all right, so that's strike three. This is like burning. In yeah, your head. like the yeah. whole time you're like, fuck. Yeah, because it was a single day. <laughs> you know, we 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 got into San Francisco at t- uh, like ten a.m. and we were gonna fly out at ten o'clock at night. It was just like on my off day. I just like just went and bought a, a plane ticket, woke her up, and said, "Grab your shit, we're doing this." And, uh, finally it was just at this, uh, little Italian restaurant, um, in the North beach area of San Francisco, right across the street from like a series of gentlemen's clubs. <laughs> We're like, Oh shit. And we went in there, but it was beautiful. Just a beautiful little family style Italian restaurant. And then pop the question and boom, the rest is history. And now we're going to have a little girl. 
Nice. Yeah. The tension was palpable though. I'm sure you're like, ah. yeah, <laughs> yeah, it was, uh, and I feel so bad because we have been taught, you know, traveling around San Francisco all day. So she's completely weathered, right? Were you driving or? No, no, no. We did. Say, if you were like Scotty driving around. Yeah. <laughs> um, we, we had multiple forms of transportation, uh, but we, we took the BART into, which is the Bay Era rail transportation into San Francisco. And then we bicycled around um, in San Francisco. And then we took one of those double decker tour buses and. Again, it started off beautiful, but again, something happens at five o'clock in, in San Francisco, and yeah, we we both looked terrible by the time you know, like dinner came, and then I'm like, all right, our plane's coming, like we have to get out of here. I'm like, I have to do this. I can't go back to, <laughs> right. uh, I can't go back to Austin empty-handed. <laughs> so I'm like, hey, you, you might want to go to the bathroom and like fix yourself up, which is probably the worst thing ever <laughs> to say to a woman. But I was thinking she's gonna want photos. She's gonna right. want to take pictures. Yeah. And if she's looking completely disheveled, she, she'll just never let me, you know, forget it. So, um, <laughs> and tell me when she emerged from the bathroom, there was a green, there was this beautiful green, green. like, uh, <laughs> her, hair was, yeah. her hair was up. It was beautiful. And, uh, yeah. So there you go. <laughs> but anyway, yeah, a little, a little, so it was our, our ode to San Francisco. Oh, and the night before we did, uh, before we went, um, kind of set it up and I'm like, Hey, let's just watch, uh, Vertigo. Just completely randomly set it up. And again, not a really romantic love story <laughs> that you want to really think about. I mean, it's obviously there's uh, some real romance and passion in the film. But when you analyze the, the themes and subtext, it's the, the last movie that you really want to think of as like the, the romantic film choice before you right. propose to somebody. <laughs> but um, I guess to move us back, back on topic, did you have any final thoughts that, that you want to share before we close this episode i guess it really comes down to my my final thoughts are like why why is this the movie that right now um a lot of people feel is the the greatest movie of all time or why is it the movie that i feel it's the the greatest film of all time and I mean, we, for, we've, for the past hour or so, we've been talking about these other, you know, these other things that go on in the movie and we, we're talking about the subtext and we're talking about, we're talking about plot and story and, and the whole, the, the whole search. So what makes this such a, a fascinating movie? Why, why does this movie, you know, 50, shoot, 60 years, 60 years now, right? I mean, it's 2018, this movie 58. So yeah, that's, that's 60 years ago. 60 years. So um, why does this movie continue to re resonate? Why is this movie so good? And for me, it's because I can't stop thinking about, it. I mean, there, there's just so much that when I, when I think about, about this film and just the, the character study that, 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 you know, it just leaves a very lasting impression, uh, upon you and, and it, not necessarily for you know, all the right ways, uh, but it's it just something that sticks and you, it, it just, it just gets in your head and you're just like, and the more you think about it, the more you analyze it, that just the more brilliant the movie, the movie is at least to me. I would say that the innovations that he developed and, and utilized in the film really can really make it feel pretty fresh and relevant in terms of a modern film or contemporary film, I guess. Um, because as I said at the beginning, you know, it's like I, I really don't tend to like older films. I mm -hmm. think 
there's probably a few beyond like 1970 that I've really enjoyed all that much. And so the Dolly Zoom, first time that's ever been used. Mm -hmm. So that's notable. Again, the dream sequence, the trippy mm -hmm. acid, acid nightmare, <laughs> so to speak. I mean, those were all the, the title sequence against Saul Bass. Mm -hmm. Those are those three things to me are what kind of make it a landmark film. Yeah. And, and again, it's difficult, I think, to place it in that context, right? Because, you know, this has obviously influenced many, many films. Mm -hmm. And of course, Hitchcock. And I think even, you know, I was debating on what, because next time we have you on, we're going to do my number five film, which I, I think I've settled on Apocalypse Now, but I was arguing with myself and maybe thinking about using Inglorious Bastards. Love which it. I think the opening scene of Inglorious Bastards really utilized that Hitchcockian tension building. Yeah, the the opening, and I mean, obviously, we'll we'll be able to talk a lot more about that. But the opening scene in Inglorious Bastards is one of my favorite scenes in the past, in, in movies that have come out in like the past ten years. Just love that scene. The the whole milk scene is just. Yeah. He had that tension just so like a, mm -hmm. like a piano wire. just and, ding, Yeah, ding, and, and just Christoph Waltz just completely owning the shit out of that scene. And it's like those those words were just made for for him to speak. And it's just brilliant. Um, you had just said something regarding in terms of innovation that the film that, you know, uh, that uh, that Vertigo has. And it does, you know, um, and it's completely unique and it, it's a brilliant movie. But what I find really fascinating about it is to your average audience, it's probably one of the least accessible in terms of plot when you when you think of Alfred Hitchcock films. I mean, you know, a movie like North by Northwest or a movie like The Birds, um, a movie like Notorious or, um, you know, Strangers on a Train, like plot wise, they're they're a lot more on the surface of what it is. I mean, this is our story. This is what we're you know, what we're tracking but this one is more of a psychology and in many ways it, it, it's it's good like setup for the film that would come out a few years later in Psycho. This uh, where Psycho just takes it a different level, different direction. Instead, you know, instead of falling in love with a dead person, it's now, you know, like um, falling in love with your dead mother and killing, you know, other women. But the so I mean it it was a kind of a precursor of something something complete what probably Alfred Hitchcock's most famous movie. Uh, in psycho so um so yeah those are just kind of like my closing thoughts i would say on on on, on um on vertigo nice i don't have anything to close this out with other than i guess repeating that that beautiful line about and um, please do here i was born and there i died it was just a moment for you you took no notice yeah it would have been great just to even like <laughs> yeah maybe like when you when you uh uh, set this up. Go ahead and even close out the with uh with Kim Novak actually saying it. And right, boom. that's a great idea. Yeah, there you go. But uh, we are going to sign off for this week, and next time we have Andrew back at at some point soon, hopefully. Uh, Definitely, we, we will be taking a look at. I think Apocalypse Now is what I've settled on. Love it. That, love it. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. So good night, ladies and gentlemen. Good evening, rather. Thank you. Thank you.